Last week I began a new series of sermons, and I began by acknowledging that a lot of people I know have both a great deal of interest, but also a great deal of confusion about what the Bible says happens after this life. I get asked a lot of questions that have to do with uh, those sorts of things, but very, very high on the list of questions I'm asked as a pastor. You know, people have questions for pastors, and one of the ones that I have to field most often is, Pastor, do you think so-and-so is in heaven? Oftentimes, it's asked about uh, a loved one, which certainly makes sense, a departed loved one. Um, But interestingly to me, the question often comes up with regards to celebrities as well. We have a very keen interest in where our celebrities go. Uh, And so when a celebrity dies, it's not uncommon that I'll I'll get a a passing comment or a note or sometimes even an email. Do you think, you know, my favorite musician or, or sports uh, player or, or politician or whoever it might be, my favorite actor, do you, th- do you think they're in heaven? You know, because I really like to think that the, the music there is pretty good. Um, understandably, I think we have a keen interest in heaven as part of the afterlife. And I think a lot of us, a lot of us who would consider ourselves to be Christians, were trained to think this way about heaven. Much of the, the Christian movement in the last generation or two has been built on questions about heaven. We've been trained to share our faith with people by asking them, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? Or maybe we ask questions like, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? Have you heard questions like this? It's part of the foundation of our faith. As a result, the work of proclaiming the gospel is often seen as the task of of getting people off the road to hell and and on the road to heaven. And who wouldn't want to go to heaven? Sounds like a pretty nice place. So as a result of that, I think preachers throughout the years have often tried to appeal to crowds from the basis of it's time to make a choice to go to heaven. Just last Friday night, my family was driving through downtown Naperville, and there was a group that was gathered right by the Riverwalk there. They had signs up talking about heaven is a real place, and hell is a real place, and you need to get right with God or you're going to end up in the wrong one. And and there was a preacher on on a sound system, microphone and speakers, everybody in the downtown area could hear, and they were talking about heaven, 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 we want you to go to heaven, we want you to go to heaven. Earlier this summer, there was a a resurgence of interest in the 1989 movie, The Field of Dreams. Uh, Iconic line from that movie. Do you remember the movie where the baseball players from generations past kind of miraculously appear in a cornfield in in Iowa to, to to play baseball again? And there's that great line where one of them asks the farmer, played by Kevin Costner, is this heaven? And what does Kevin Costner say? He says, no. It's Iowa. It's Iowa. And there at the end of the film, after all these miracles have taken place, Kevin Costner reflects, the character reflects, and he says, well, maybe, maybe it was heaven. Maybe it is heaven. One of the most uh, acclaimed television shows over the past four or five years has been the, the comedy The Good Place, which, if you've seen it, is a, is a spoof on what life in heaven might be like. 
So look, even if we acknowledge that cultural phenomena like Field of Dreams or, or The Good Place are more fantasy than theology, even if we acknowledge that, there's no denying that most people, Christian or not, are captivated by thoughts of heaven. Recent data from the Pew Research Center indicates that 70% of Americans believe that heaven is a real place. That's amazing to me. Think about that. In this era of division, I'm amazed that you could get 70% of Americans to agree that the sky is blue, right? We argue about everything. There's detractors to everything. But still in this era, 70% of the people in our nation That's more than consider themselves to be Christian or any particular religion, but they still believe that heaven is a real place. And similar data suggests that most of them think that's where they're going to go when they die. And for many people, I think that's the central question of their faith. Don't you think? Where will I go to die when I die? How can I get to heaven? So today I want to begin our afterwards about heaven by just coming right out with the answer to the question that's on everybody's mind. Am I going to go to heaven when I die? And I can tell you this, that having read the scripture, having read what the Bible has to say about heaven, having known the Hobson Road Community Church family the way I know the HRCC family, here's what I'm ready to report to you. None of us is going to heaven when we die. None of us is going to heaven when we die. Probably not the way you wanted your Sunday morning to begin. (laughs) Probably not what you were expecting to hear from your pastor this morning. Are you feeling encouraged yet? I can see there's some concerned looks on some faces just right above those masks. I can see that some of you are worried. I can see that some of you are a little ticked. I think that some of you are thinking we're going to have to have a word with pastor about this just after the sermon. If you're a little worried about my statement, let me tell you this. I stand behind it. And please, just pretty, pretty please give me a few moments to kind of walk us all through this. But I'm confident in saying this. None of us is going to heaven when we die. It seems likely that there are some people in this room that became Christians because somebody told you that if you believe in Jesus, then when it's time for you to draw your final breath, you're going to fall asleep and wake up in another place and there's going to be gates made out of pearl and there's going to be streets made out of gold. What I'm here to tell you today is that according to the Bible, that is not the case. That's just not what the Bible says about heaven. I mean, the gates of pearl thing, that's from the Bible. The streets like gold thing, that's from the Bible. But the whole dying, falling asleep, and waking up there, that's not what the Bible says. So what does the Bible say about heaven? Let's go through a couple of things really quickly here. The Bible describes heaven as God's dwelling place. Now, that's pretty consistent throughout Scripture. When the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about heaven as the dwelling place of God. Let me give you just one example among many. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, we hear Moses praying. And in verse 15, he says this to God. He says, now, God, look down from your holy dwelling place in heaven and bless your people. Just one example among many about how the Scriptures show us that heaven, what is heaven? Well, heaven is the dwelling place of God. Now, 
we could be theology nerds here for a minute and say, well, isn't God omnipresent? Isn't God everywhere at the same time? Isn't God infinite? Isn't it true that God cannot be contained? Kind of like Michael Jordan, you can't contain him, just hope to, no. Yes, all of those things are true, but at the same time, the Bible affirms again and again and again that God has a place that is uniquely his, and that place is called heaven. Here's what else the Bible says. The Bible describes heaven as the seat of God's authority. Let me explain it to you this way. We have a president in this country, and the president is the president no matter where he goes. For instance, did you know that Air Force One is not a particular airplane? Air Force One is the official call sign of whatever airplane the president happens to be on. So if the president, for whatever reason, were to go over to Clow Airport over here in Bolingbrook and get into a two-seat passenger prop plane, that plane would be Air Force One by virtue of the president being on it. The president is president no matter where he goes. But the seat of authority for the president of the United States is the Oval Office. And that's why the president doesn't take his most important meetings at Starbucks. He does not develop his best plans, and he does not give governmental orders from his favorite recliner in the back room. He does those things from the resolute desk in the Oval Office, because that is the seat of his authority. And in the same way, heaven is the seat of God's authority. God is God no matter where he might be, no matter where we might encounter his presence. God is God and his authority is what it is. But the seat of that authority is in heaven. That is the place where his power is made evident. The essence, the essence of that we see in the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus prays, and I'm reading now from the New Living Translation, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you memorize the Lord's Prayer in the older translations, you'll remember thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus is praying. He's saying, I recognize that the seat of authority for the Father is where? in heaven. And so the prayer is saying, in heaven, God, we know that your will is done instantly and perfectly in every situation. The prayer is saying, may it be so on earth. Because it isn't so on earth. That's why we pray, right? On earth, we deal with the impacts of, of, of evil, of disease, of, of pain, and of brokenness. And none of those things are God's will or his intent for his creation. And so the belief that we can pray and God will hear our prayers, the belief that we can pray and God will do miracles on earth, those beliefs are an extension of the belief that says God's will is always made perfect in heaven because that is the seat of his Authority, and we desire to see that extended onto the earth. One more important heavenly theme in the Bible is this the Bible describes heaven as a storehouse of rewards for God's people. A storehouse of rewards for God's people. Jesus really put the finest point on this. We know that Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Well, when describing why we should do that in Luke chapter 6, he says, well, because then your reward from heaven will be very great. 
and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High. There is a reward in heaven for those who are obedient unto the Lord. You might recall that elsewhere Jesus has instructed us not to store up treasure on earth where things tend to waste, but to store up, what does he say, treasure in heaven. There's treasure in heaven because heavenly treasure endures while earthly treasure fades away. So throughout the Bible, not just in the words of Jesus, but certainly in the words of Jesus, throughout the Bible, there's this idea that heaven is the place where treasures and rewards are stored up for the godly person. But I want to challenge your thought about that with this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we have to wait until we die in order to access them. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi says, I see the floodgates of heaven open up so that God can shower blessings down upon his people in the here and now. There's no idea that we have to wait to die to go to heaven and turn in our ticket stub so that we can receive our reward. No, God says heaven is a storehouse of treasure, of blessing, of reward, but the witness of scripture says, and that's available to us as God chooses in the life we live now. If you are a part of the people of God, then there's good stuff for you in heaven. But that doesn't mean you have to wait to die in order to get it. God is showering those rewards down upon you in this life. And there's a whole lot more detail we could go into that I'm not going to go into today. That's like a whole other topic for a whole other sermon. Today, what's important for us to remember is this. The Bible has described heaven in all of these ways. It said heaven is God's dwelling place. It said heaven is the seat of his authority. It's said heaven is a storehouse of rewards for God's people. It describes heaven in all of those ways, but it never describes heaven as the location of the dead. It just never talks about somebody dying and go to heaven, going to heaven. How often do we say that? Well, they died and went to heaven, but the Bible actually never says that. At least not in the way that most of us tend to think about it. And it certainly never uses those words. Well, great. And what on earth are we doing here? Anybody feeling frustrated yet? If I can get you frustrated, I'll have done my job. If the idea of dying and going to heaven is off the table, then what should we expect when we die? I mean, isn't that what I said I would talk about afterwards, the Bible's words about what happens after? What then do we expect? What role does heaven play in the life of a follower of Jesus? And to answer that question, I want to give you an important principle. It doesn't just apply to what we're going to do today and what I'm going to talk about for the remaining minutes. It's just a good principle that you can use any time you have questions or concerns about what life should look like for a follower of Jesus. Anytime there's confusions about what do followers of Jesus do or what should we expect for followers of Jesus, here's the principle. If we want to, if we want to find those things out about followers of Jesus, let's start by looking at what happens to Jesus. First, look to the life of Jesus himself. And with that in mind, I want to just remind you of what I'm going to call the journey of Jesus. 
In the broadest standpoints, these are the things that happened to Jesus. You see them there on the screen. Life. He was born of the virgin in Bethlehem, right? Death. He died on the cross. After death, what happened to Jesus? And that's really the question before us right now. The Bible doesn't say he died and went to heaven. The Bible says he died and he was buried. After death came the grave. After the grave came the resurrection. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that the Bible says, and then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. So the question in looking at this order of events that I've put on the screen for you is, did Jesus die and then go right to heaven? No, he didn't. And if he didn't, why would we presume that we would? Aren't we called to be followers of Jesus? Aren't we called to live and presumably to die as he did? Each of us will follow the path that Jesus took. Find yourself in the journey here on the screen. Right now, if you can hear my words, I would suspect that you are on step number one, life, right? That's where each one of us is. And the Bible affirms that each one of us will someday experience step number two, which is death. Now, yes, there's a big asterisk here. And the asterisk says that there is, at some point in the future of humanity, a generation that will not taste death because they will still be alive at the point that Jesus returns and the end of time comes. That is absolutely part of our belief. But just for the purposes of this discussion on heaven, let us presume that we are not necessarily part of that generation. Now, whether we are or not, I'm not trying to tip my hand here. That's, a, again, a whole other conversation. But for the purposes of this conversation, let us presume that we are not part of that generation. We are like every other generation that has come before us, and therefore, we are all alive. Everybody raise your hand if you're alive. Thank you very much. That means we will all someday experience death. And then the question is, what happens next? And the pattern of Jesus' life says, well, what happens next is the grave. Now, in a few weeks, that is going to be the topic of, of my sermon. And I don't want to get too much into that right now, but here's a spoiler alert for you. No, that does not mean that you will fall asleep while your body fertilizes daisies and becomes food for worms. No, that does not mean that the only proper Christian way to experience rites of, of, of death is, is to be buried rather than being, for instance, cremated. No, that's not what I'm talking about at all. I don't believe that's what the Bible says at all. The term the grave, or in the Bible sometimes it says falling asleep, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. There's a lot of things that all people will be cognizant and aware of when that happens. And for the believer, those things are going to be wonderful. But it's not heaven. It's not heaven. But as I said, that's a talk for about three weeks from now. It's not heaven. The idea that believers who have died are immediately transported to heaven where they sit and wait for the rest of us just isn't a biblical idea at all. I remember about 20 years ago, there was a song, a Christian song that became very popular and was sung at a lot of funerals and memorial services. 
And the words for the song said, if you could see me now, I'm walking streets of gold. Beautiful song, wonderful song. Not what the Bible says. Not what the Bible says. The idea that people who have departed are currently sitting in heaven waiting for the rest of us to show up isn't true to the order or the pattern that Jesus gave us. They're not in heaven. And the reason I can say with certainty that they're not in heaven is that there's still another very, very important step yet to be accomplished. And it's kind of the basis of the Christian faith. It is the central point in the Christian faith. We can't overlook it. Resurrection. We can't overlook the resurrection. Even Jesus himself, who the Bible affirms as the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father, existed in heaven from eternity past. Even Jesus himself did not die and go immediately to heaven. No, he first passed through the resurrection. He experienced a bodily, physical resurrection. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks as well. The Bible says it will be the same for us. Jesus was resurrected first as the example, and all other Christians are waiting for the final days when we will be resurrected together. And heaven just isn't open to us until that point. Now, maybe, just maybe, you're getting pretty frustrated with me right about now. Because I started out by saying that none of us will go to heaven when we die. And now it kind of sounds like I was just mincing words in order to be provocative and get everybody's attention. After all, I've already indicated that after death for the believer, things are actually pretty nice and okay, heaven, schmeaven, whatever. As long as it's good, I'm in, right? And I did say, as we see on that line, okay, we do get to heaven eventually, or at least Jesus did, and we're told to follow him, so okay, grave, resurrection, whatever. If it ends up with heaven, I'm good, I'm in. And so maybe you're frustrated and you're thinking, okay, Dan, life, death, grave, resurrection, but then we finally go to heaven, and that's good enough. And to that, I say, no. I still say that according to the Bible, none of us is going to go to heaven. Why not? Our hope isn't that we might go to heaven. Our hope is that heaven will come to us. Let me say that again. Our hope, according to the scripture, isn't that someday we might get out of here and go to heaven. Our hope, according to the scripture, is that someday heaven will come to us. When we read the Bible and pay very careful attention to the afterwords about heaven, a distinct pattern emerges. In the Bible, even resurrected people don't really leave the earth in order to go to heaven. Instead, heaven comes down to earth. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, and if you've been part of the church here for a year or so, I certainly hope you are, because we, we preached our way through it last year, didn't we? If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you might recall that at the end of the book of Revelation, in John's apocalyptic vision of the end of all things, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
Now, why on earth? Kind of a funny pun there, don't you think? Why on earth would God create a new earth at the end of all times and then abandon it? Why on earth would God recreate? That's the word we use very often to describe this process. Why would God restore and recreate his creation and then say, okay, everybody out of here, I have this whole other place I want to take you all to. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Revelation answers that question. In chapter 21, verse 2, John says, and then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down. Coming down from God out of heaven. Heaven come down to earth. That's the culmination of the story. That's the place this is all headed. The good news of the Bible isn't that someday you might go to heaven. The good news of the Bible is that the kingdom is coming here. The dwelling place of God, as we described it, it's coming here. The seat of God's perfect authority, it's coming here. The storehouse of blessings and treasures and rewards for God's people. That's the good news of the Bible. That's the good news that the story of Scripture drives us towards. The good news isn't, can you hear this? The good news isn't that the world is slowly going down the toilet, but if you play your cards exactly right, maybe you get to escape it right before it really goes bad. That is not good news. And yet that is how so many of us have been trained to think about heaven. Look, we've seen this play out, and I'm going to ask you to set aside whatever your preconceptions about world politics might be, just for a moment, because I think it's too vivid not to, not to address. We've seen this play out in Afghanistan over the last couple of weeks. Haven't we? When those who come proclaiming peace and protection and safety, leave, that's not good news. It's very much not good news. How could we say that that's the good news of Scripture, that someday you might escape? No, the good news is, in the midst of this mess, the kingdom is coming. In the midst of this sin and stink, People of faith stand up and say, the kingdom is coming. I want you to think about that as you go from this place today and you encounter whatever you might encounter. In your life, the gospel for you today says the kingdom is coming. In your home today, the gospel of Jesus says the kingdom is coming to that place. In your workplace, you walk in as a child of the king, knowing and proclaiming and being the very evidence of the promise that the kingdom is coming. As you walk in and into your life, as you take account of your life and you recognize your weaknesses, you recognize your brokenness, you recognize your fallenness, you declare the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. God's going to make his home in this place. The perfect seat of his authority is coming to fix this mess. Recreation, new creation is the promise that we live in. The kingdom is coming. But I'm not done yet because it gets even better. (laughs) The kingdom is coming. 
We're gonna try that again. It gets even better. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. At home, they were cheering wildly. I, I could just tell. It gets even better, and I'm gonna tell you about that, but first, let's talk about baseball. Andy Novak, cheering <laughs> Let's talk about baseball. <coughs> when a pitcher throws a baseball, my understanding is he would like for the batter to be unable to hit it. Is that fair? Andy, is that how that works? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, one of the ways he can do that is when a pitcher throws a baseball, if he can cause that baseball to spin in the air very, very quickly, that baseball is going to curve and change directions. Okay, and there's different grips that pitchers use to put different kinds of spin and rotation on the baseball, and you do it one way, and you've got a curveball, you do it another way, you've got a slider, you've got a sinker, you've got a whatever. But the point is, I want to make that baseball dance in the air and change direction so that the batter cannot hit it. And here's the thing, the faster that pitcher can make that ball rotate in the air, the more sharply it's going to change direction. And so if you're a pitcher, you want to get that ball spinning as quickly as you can for certain kinds of breaking balls. Now, over the years, in order to do that, pitchers have loaded up their hands with sticky stuff. Because if they can make their hands really, really sticky, then as they release the ball, they can have their fingertips in contact with that ball for just a millisecond longer, and they can apply just that much more torque to the ball, so it can spin just that much more, and so a curveball, instead of doing this, can do this, boom, and just disappear from the batter's perspective. And so over the years, pitchers have done that. They've doctored up their throwing hands with all sorts of different things, and it's kind of been one of those unwritten rules and the league just basically looks the other way. But over the past few years, it's gotten ridiculous. It's gotten ridiculous and we can measure. We have high speed cameras that show how that ball spins as it heads towards home plate and the spin rates on baseballs has gone through the roof. And as a result, the batting average of professional batters has gone down the drain. And the strikeout rate has gone through the roof because some of the baseballs that are being thrown in the major leagues now are almost literally impossible to hit. Swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. And so this year, professional baseball, major league baseball said, we're gonna do something about that. And so on a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of June, they released a press statement. They said, we have informed all major league clubs that starting next Monday, we will be enforcing the rules that are on the book about having foreign substances on your hands. Starting next Monday, we're going to tell our umpires that you have to inspect the pitcher before the game. You have to look at his glove, look at his hat, examine his uniform, anywhere where he might be trying to hide sticky goop. And you have to make sure that he doesn't have anything illegal. And you're gonna examine that pitcher at the end of every inning to make sure he doesn't just go back to the dugout and get some after the exam. And anytime a new pitcher comes into the game or leaves the game, you're going to do the same thing. And so pitchers all of a sudden are subject to these kind of FAA style pat downs in between every inning and anytime time there's a transition. And as I said, Major League Baseball said, all of this is going to start next week. And you want to know what happened? A miracle happened. <laughs> For the next week, not when the rules started being enforced, but as soon as the announcement was made, batting averages started going up. Spin rates started going down. 
Strikeout percentages started going down. A change happened and it was measurable, mathematically measurable. All of a sudden curveballs that used to do this started just doing this. And maybe you could hit the curve. Sometimes things change just because we know that things are gonna change. You understand what I mean by that? Sometimes things change just because we know that things are gonna change. And I believe it's like that with heaven. The world hasn't come to an end yet, am I right? Heaven has not yet come down to earth, but that still doesn't mean we have to wait for things to change. In fact, our confidence is in knowing that the way to heaven is already open. Our confidence is in knowing that the way to heaven is already open. The announcement's been made. We don't have to wait for next week or next year or next century or whenever that date might be. Our confidence comes in knowing that the way to heaven has already been made open. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, and so dear brothers and sisters, we can, can I pause here? I'm gonna presume that the author of Hebrews is writing to people who are alive, okay? And so, dear living brothers and sisters who are all still alive, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Is there anything in there that says, so we can hope that someday we're gonna die and go to heaven? not there. What does the author say? And so, because of the announcement that has been made, because Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom has come, because we know what's going to happen, we don't know when it's going to happen, but we know that it's going to happen. And because of all of that, we, present tense, right now, can enter heaven's most holy place. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Sound gruesome? Well, remember the path that Jesus took to heaven. We put it five steps on the screen, right? Life, death, grave, resurrection, and heaven. The death of Jesus was part of that path, an incredibly important part of that path. The death of Jesus was the route he took to bust open the doors of heaven so that you and I might be a part of that kingdom. For thousands of years, the people of God before the time of Jesus trusted that one day God was going to open his heavenly kingdom for them. But look, read the Old Testament. They didn't really have a way of knowing exactly how that was going to happen. They, they couldn't see it. They, they didn't know what exactly that would look like. You and I, you and I live with the privilege of knowing exactly what Jesus did. He lived, he died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose. Then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. That is our confidence. Our confidence is in knowing that the way to heaven is already open. We have seen it.
So no, none of us is going to die and go to heaven. As a matter of fact, the afterwords of the Bible compel us. They compel us to stop thinking about heaven in terms of a place that we might go. And to start thinking about heaven as a kingdom that is coming. A kingdom that we can live into now. Because the way open has been made clear. And that is a confident reality that we can press into every day of our lives. I closed my message last Sunday talking just about the nature of eternity itself. And what I wanted to communicate to you in in those words was there's no reason to wait. For the life of a follower of Jesus, eternity has already begun. Today, I look at a different set of afterwords. I look at what the Bible actually says about heaven. So different, have you noticed? And what the world tends to say, even what we casually say in Christendom, so very different what the Bible actually says. And yet we arrive at the very same place. Brothers, sisters, there's no need to wait. Stop waiting to go to heaven. Stop hoping that maybe, maybe, maybe someday you can die and go to heaven. That is not the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim. The way has been opened up. The path is made clear. The reality is something that we can be confident in. I got through a whole sermon about heaven without mentioning that it's supposedly a very, very nice place. Can we just put that in the group of, no, let's not assume it. Would you stand up? I want to read to you from Revelation chapter 21 as we conclude. And I would like you to hear these words with fresh ears. If you've been in church services before, you've probably heard them time and time again. If you've read through your Bibles, you've you've read them time and time again. But I want to invite you to hear them just with fresh ears this morning. Thinking of heaven not as a place that you hope, fingers crossed, that you might go to someday, but thinking instead of heaven, as the Bible describes heaven, as a kingdom that is coming. As a kingdom that is coming. Would you now hear what it has to say about that kingdom? Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. That shout did not say, look, God finally rescued his people and got them out of that terrible place they've been in. That shout did not say, look, the last helicopter finally landed. I think we got all the good guys out. It doesn't say anything about escape. It doesn't say anything about abandonment. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. Not he invited them over for a little while. Nah, he will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death. Why not? Because we aren't going to need to go to heaven anymore. Because God will be with us. There will be no more death. 
or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, and I invite you to do the same. Look, with physical eyes, look, with spiritual eyes of faith, look, word of the Lord, I am making all things new. Father, we receive your word today. We receive the promise of a heaven that is not a distant land that we might be teleported to after we breathe our final breath, but we receive the promise of a kingdom where you have made your dwelling place since eternity from the foundations, Lord, a kingdom, Lord, where your power and authority find their seat and their source, a kingdom, Lord, that is overflowing with blessing and reward for your people for your creation about whom you said this is very, very, very good. Father, we receive today the promise of heaven. It's coming. It's coming. As we encounter the problems and the difficulties and the challenges of this life, whether we see them within ourselves or in the circumstances that surround us, stop our spirits from crying out, God, get me out of here. And remind us instead that your promise is that your kingdom is coming. Your kingdom is coming. And Father, we look to the example, the one who was given to us. We look to our Savior, Jesus. And we thank you and receive in faith today the promise that he has set open the gates of heaven. From those gates, Lord, would you shower your blessing down upon your people. From those gates, Lord, would you make your will be accomplished on earth just as it is there. And from those gates, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, would you come soon? We pray it in your name. And everybody says, amen. Amen.